This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. I'm really excited today because um, we're going to be jumping into our book study that's going to go for about a year, uh, probably a little bit longer in Mark. Uh, Just to remind you, we are one of nine congregations today. Uh, Another congregation is having their first service in Peoria. So thank God for Redemption Peoria. Be praying for for them. Uh, That's our ninth congregation today. All of us together are starting um, our Mark series. And so for the last two months, we've been doing a localized series, uh, Advent. And then we did a house kind of series speaking to us locally uh, but now we are uniting once again with all of our all of our congregations, and we're starting in on the book of Mark. I'm giddy about it. I I uh, am so excited. I love studying scripture, and I love preaching through books. It, it it it. There's nothing more as a as a pastor, as a lover of God's word, that I love to do than this. So I hope that you dive in with us to this book of Mark, and uh, study along, read the texts. And, uh, and, and let God speak to us. Um, the book of Mark is, um, is an interesting book because it's different than all of the other Gospels. Now, when, when we talk about the Gospels, this is not a genre of literature. It's, it's something that uh, the early church had kind of given a title to these four books. It was more known as a church book about Jesus, if you will. Right? This is a book about Jesus, and the reason why you have all these accounts, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is because it gives us more of a 4D version of the life of Jesus, right? I want you to kind of look at these books, if you will, and specifically the book of Mark, not as a biography, because a lot of times what we think of when we're going through uh, the books of the Bible, we kind of look at, or these gospels, is we kind of look at them as biographies, just somebody kind of recording things that Jesus did. The problem with that is there is many more things, even John says, that if we wrote down all the things that Jesus had done, there's no books in the world that could contain all of that information. These are not just kind of accounts or biographies of things that Jesus had done. And when you look at it that way, you kind of miss the point of this literature. Okay? So it's really important for us to understand that these are stories, these are narratives that has a single flow. And when Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but specifically as we're studying Mark, as Mark is writing this, he's writing a narrative, and each part of this story, he's trying to drive a point home. These are not just uh, accounts of things that Jesus did. These are messages to be preached. Mark has a message he wants us to hear through the whole book and in particular each text as we study it because this whole narrative moves towards a point. He's trying to show something in the book. So it's important for us not to just look at this as kind of things Jesus did, but as Mark a herald of the stories of Jesus trying to show us something about Jesus that will draw us closer to him, closer to the Father. And so it's important for us to see Mark as 
a whole narrative. And this narrative, Mark, is, rude, is, is attached to this grand narrative, the story of the Bible. So Mark is written like a story. And as you see, as we go through this thing, it's, it's kind of acted out on three stages. Galilee at the beginning, the road to Jerusalem in the middle, and then at the end, Jerusalem. And so what we're going to see is that all of this is not just like a camcorder uh, version, like just Mark kind of following the life of Jesus. It's not a camcorder version. It's more of a, um, of a, of a, of a story that Mark is telling. This is not just a documentary. I want that to sink deep into our part. It's an intentional point of view in which needs to be preached. So I'm excited about that because I love to preach. So when we see this, um, it's important for us to look at the different ways in which these narratives are written. But Mark specifically was written kind of as a, a tragedy, if you will, a Greek tragedy. He kind of wrote this narrative in a way in which highlighted death, if you will. The death of Christ on the cross, the death of the followers of Christ. And this, this narrative moves along really quick. It's the shortest book of the Bible. I mean, the shortest book, the shortest gospel. And it's written, as you're going to see, very quick. Like, Mark would have been great on Twitter, right? <laughs> he says things in very short sentences that other gospels, other uh, like John, would take more time to explain. Mark just kind of says it. It doesn't even start, this book doesn't even start with the account of Jesus' birth. It doesn't start with his birth. It starts, and we're going to see that, the beginning point at John the Baptist, and it kind of moves really, really quick. So I want to read you what one commentator says. He says, St. Mark has a special gift of brevity and a graphic painting in wonderful combinations. While on every occasion he compresses the discourse, works, and history into simple possible kernels. See, what Mark is doing here is he's, he's driving things to a point, and he's writing this story in a way to get us to this point. And because he has this point that he wants us to grab a hold of, he doesn't spend much time highlighting other things in detail. So as we study this today, I want us to kind of read this book in which in the in the authorial t- in the way that the author intended us to read it. Okay? So here's what here's what I want you to picture. I don't know if um, if you like movies or stories, but I do. I, I, I do too much sometimes. And one of one of my favorite movies, and I'm not like super obsessed with it like some people are but I really did like and still do like Star Wars anybody like Star Wars okay now I I there's something about Star Wars that was interesting when I first watched Star Wars uh, and I remember I was super young my my I was so obsessed with Star Wars I loved it I, I wasn't like crazy about it but I loved Star Wars because I love stories right and 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 in the um in the uh 
in Star Wars, the episode, in, in the fifth episode, Empire Strikes Back. Now, what you end up doing is you're following this life of Luke, who's, who's this, this young kid, and he's raised, and he's become this Jedi, and then he's fighting Darth Vader. I don't want to paint the whole picture for you because I, that's not the point of the message. I just want you to see he's fighting Darth Vader, and there's this part that everybody knows who's seen it where this twist comes to the story that just kind of blows your mind. Like you do not see it coming at all. It's when Darth Vader in the middle of the fight says, Luke. What does he say? You, you all know it. And at that point, you're like, no. What? And even Luke does it. He's holding on to this, this thing hanging over an edge going, no. Darth Vader's my father. I never saw it coming. I remember seeing that part and being like, where, where did this come from? I'm just as shocked as Luke. I'm in tears like he is. The whole story's messed up now. That twist in the story, you know, you kind of get these plot lines and you know where things are going and you always see these movies that have this twist in the story and you never saw it coming and you're like why and then everything starts coming together does that make sense when the twist is revealed everything starts coming together now if you can look at mark as like this you're dreaming and you've been hearing this story but then all of a sudden it's like this big announcement this splash of water in your face waking you up out of the dream and you hear this twist and now all of the sudden all of that you expected the storyline would entail everything that took place in the storyline up until that point all of a sudden it's this Luke I am your father announcement and then all of a sudden you're like what and everything starts to make sense Everything starts to come together. Now, Mark starts his book with this twist. You have to picture this, if you will, because in verse 1, he starts in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is this announcement, this Luke, I am your father announcement. And here's the reason why, is because this whole section that we're going to study, if, if this announcement would have come to the people that it came to, who had been embedded in this whole story, who had been anticipating the coming of the Messiah, anticipating this ruler that would come in and overthrow the government, anticipating this one that would come and, 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 and make all things right. This anticipation, and then all of a the sudden, they say, this Jesus, he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the one you've been waiting for. He is the one that all of the things of Scripture have been building up to. See, what's important for us is that Mark is jumping right into this announcement and then he's going to spend this first, first section and some commentators say he's going to spend the whole book proving this announcement. 
And here's his first proof that he gives. And I want you to look at um, verse 2 through 3. Here's what he's going to show us. In the first, I I put the wrong slide up. Yep. All right. Oh, I did it again. I'm new new to this technology, but let's see what happens. Okay. Yeah. Verse 2 through 3. All of Scripture whispers Jesus' name. I love that. I stole it from the Jesus Storybook Bible. When I read it to my kids and I read that that, that header, all of Scripture whispers Jesus' name. When I thought of these verses, I thought, man, what a way to explain what happens in verse 2. Because what happens in verse 2 and 3 is Mark makes this statement, Luke, I am your father. He makes this statement, Jesus, you are, he is the son of God. And then what he does is he takes that statement and roots it in the narrative. He shows that this has been announced all the way through the prophecies. This has been said, and then he gives in verse 2 and 3 a prophet Isaiah's saying that this messenger would come and, it, and that this prophecy of John, and he's going to talk about this in just a minute, would come. Here's what we look at. When we look at the Old Testament, or if we, we call it that, when we look at this grand narrative, the story of Scripture, when we read the Old Testament, when we read these stories of old, here's what you have to understand. You're going to look at it. When you know that Christ is the Son of God, you're going to look at the Old Covenant and you're going to see shadows of Jesus everywhere. You can't read those stories without seeing shadows of Jesus everywhere. And Mark makes this announcement and he shows this is a new revelation and it may seem like a splash in a face, But now that you see the Old Covenant, you see the prophets through the lens of Jesus, you're going to understand Genesis, even chapter uh, 3, where right after the fall, right after man sins, God makes a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that he's going to send a son who's going to crush the head of the serpent from the very first sin God has promised all throughout the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, all the way through the stories of old, you see prophecies, shadows, foretastes, pictures of Jesus. What I love about what Mark does here is he makes this grand twist. And then he says, it's always been there. Maybe you didn't see it. Or maybe you expected something different. Or maybe because of all these prophets, you thought he was going to come in and power and overthrow the government. You thought he was going to do all of these kinds of things. But this Jesus, he is the Son of God. And it's been rooted in the whole story. See, so many people look at the, at the Bible unfortunately, as a rule book. They look at the Bible as a list of things to do. They look at the Bible as a moral way of living. Believe me, this is not in the Bible, but somebody made this up, and I'm sure you've heard it. Somebody goes, you know what the Bible means? Uh, Basic instructions before leaving earth. You heard that before? And they say, That's what it means. And they tell you this is what it means. So basic instructions before leaving earth. And that's somebody made that up and it was pithy and it B-I-B-L-E and it kind of made sense, right? 
The only problem is when you look at the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth or as a rule book or a way of living your life, you miss the whole point of Scripture. There is places in Scripture that has rules, but it is not a rule book. It's not a book to dig into to find the principles or the rules for which you live. This is a grand narrative, my friends. The other thing, this is not, it's not an encyclopedia. Some people think this is a textbook or an encyclopedia. So they run to this as a textbook in order to gain knowledge to make themselves smarter than everybody else. Or they run to this as an encyclopedia, like if they have problems starting with B, look up B. Okay? Blasphemy. Okay? What do I need to learn? (laughs) Marriage. This is a book on marriage. Let me look up marriage. So they treat this as a rule book, a textbook, or an encyclopedia. And the problem with it is, is none of that is what Scripture is. Scripture from the very beginning is this grand narrative about God and his redemptive story. It talks about how he creates all things perfectly and that he creates man in his image and likeness to be in perfect communion. And because of sin, they're separated. But God makes this grand promise from the very beginning and he calls a people and these people are to be a display and a light of this and that he he walks with them and he lives with them and he and he constantly makes a way for them to go behind the curtain and get into his presence and to be in relationship with him and he's constantly telling them I'm going to send this Messiah and he prophesies this and he's shown that Jesus is coming and then when Jesus bursts into the scene it is this Messiah has come but he didn't come as everybody thought he would come. It's this grand narrative about God. So when we go to this as a rule book for how we should live, or when we go to this as an encyclopedia, or when we go to this as a textbook, we're missing the whole point that when we go to this, we get to know God. We get to know his story and his plan. We get to know his purposes here on earth. And we get to be caught up as actors in this grand story. Church, when you approach scripture with any of those lights, as a rule book, a textbook, an encyclopedia, when you approach it in that way, you're going to have a skewed view of who God is. But when you see what John is doing here, when you see that he is showing us this announcement that Jesus is the Son of God and then he roots it in the whole story and he shows that there's going to be this one. The prophets show that there's going to be this one who's going to come And that one is going to prepare the way for the Lord. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And it shows that that one is John. Now, it shows us that John appeared. And this John, John the baptizer, or John the Baptist, as somebody called, some, some of us call him, he comes baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. 
And what would happen was that all of those in the country would come out to kind of see this spectacle, which was John. When I say spectacle, it makes a lot of sense when you look at what he was wearing, right? What he was eating. He was like a wild person out in the desert screaming, repent and be baptized. And so people would flock to hear this wild man because even that Mark would mention his clothing and what he eats is significant because it tied him to the prophets of old. This was not just his own little fashion sense in which he's like, I'm going to dress wild because it's my style, right? The reason he was dressing in this way is because people thought this is a prophet. He is a voice crying in the wilderness. This is one who is crazy, but he's saying something we all need to hear, right? See, Isaiah prophesied that there would be this man who would come, who would prepare the way and would point to Christ's work. And what Mark is showing us is John is the fulfillment of that prophecy. So he would have many crowds that would come out and he would make this big splash. Now this is important for this reason. A lot of us want to make big splashes. Big crowds, big splashes. We're, we feel validated if a lot of people will come out and look at us. And, and we think many times that John was successful as a minister because he had big crowds. But I want to try to show you that John wasn't successful as a minister because he had big crowds. It was the heart that John had by which he was distinguished as a man because here's what we have to understand that big crowds were not always a part of John's ministry matter of fact of all the people who came out to the desert to hear John crying in the wilderness there's only one that they can kind of trace back that was converted under John's ministry some say Andrew's the only one that out of all the crowds they can only trace back one that would became a follower of Christ out of John's ministry that although there were tons of people that came out there wasn't much fruit of repentance although he was crying out repentance isn't it amazing how we really feel like something significant is happening when we're sitting in a room with big crowds we love that vibe right we feed off that vibe like God's really doing something. Look at the thousands of people that are gathering together to hear this wild man crying out in the wilderness. This guy really gets it. And out of all of that, they can only trace back maybe one who was a follower of Christ. That out of all the crowds that came out to hear him cry out, repent, Maybe only one repented? See, the way we judge our ministries are by how big a spectacle we can make. You see, Paul, I mean, John did not get swept up in that. Matter of fact, people would ask, are you the one? 
are you the Messiah? Are you the one? What, who are you? And John would constantly point them to Jesus. Listen to things that he would say. He would say, after me there comes one who is mightier than I. Whose straps, whose sandals I am not even worthy stoop down to untie. He says in John chapter 3 verse 30, John says, I must decrease so that he may what? Increase. John did not have this desire to to continue to build crowds. He knew that his calling was to prepare the way for Christ. And in order to do that, he couldn't keep building big crowds. He had to decrease. He had to let the crowds know that he was not the one. He had to not fall into his own hype, but he had to continually push himself into a lower position and say, there's one coming that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, that his posture was to point people to Christ, to prepare the way and to point people to Christ. John's teachings were to exalt Christ. He said things like, after me there will come one more powerful. He spoke plainly that the Holy Spirit's baptism was going to be more powerful than water baptism or a baptism of repentance. That the baptism that this Jesus was going to come and baptize us in was going to change our whole way of living. Before we move on from this John, what lesson can we learn from him? Should we leave this passage without asking ourselves what John was trying to proclaim? Do we want to make much of Christ or do we want to make much of ourselves? What do we think of Christ? What do we think of Him? Are we trying to build something up that will point to how great we are? Or are we constantly trying to put ourselves in right place and right perspective so that people can see that there is one that you should follow who is far greater than I? What do we think of Christ? Do we know our need of Him? Have we fled to Him for peace? Is He the King over our heart? Do we know the position and the place that we have before Him? Or are we getting easily swept away with the momentum of life and ministry? Church, our lives are meant to point to one greater. All of creation was made not to receive glory, but that when creation is seen, glory is meant to hit it and bounce off of it and point to the one who is really only deserving of glory. That when we eat good food, it's not like we're not supposed to go, man, this food is not good. But when we eat good food, that food is not supposed to receive our glory and worship. This food is meant to be feeds us and sustains us. That when we see the 
great marriage. We're constantly going, what's in that marriage that I can have in my marriage? And you go to them, what did you guys do all of these years? And then they go, well, we just love each other so much. You just received all the glory. You had an opportunity in that moment not to say, here's the practical principles we've done. No, we've said, we've lived our life to reflect the one who made covenant with the church. That in trials and tribulations, we've seen that Christ was faithful to us, so we've stayed faithful to one another. That our marriage is not meant to receive honor and glory, but when it's seen, it's the point back to the one who's deserving of it. All things that are created, all gifts that are given are to reflect the one who's truly glorious. And John knew this, church. To point to him. The next thing, and I want to spend the remainder of our time on this point because it is extremely important. Look at verse 9 through 11. I want to read this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Remember the statement Mark made? He said, the beginning of the gospel, Jesus is the Son of God. He proves it by showing that that statement is rooted in the prophets. He proves it by showing that John was the fulfillment of that prophecy. And John came as a witness to point to Jesus as the Son of God. And now to prove that statement that Jesus is the Son of God, he shows Jesus' baptism. That this baptism, Jesus comes out and is baptized in water. And when he comes up out of the water, the heavens open. A voice comes from heaven. The Father declares, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit descends upon him. There's a couple things that I love about this that we need to drive home. One is, we have to see that Mark is driving to a point, And that is this. Jesus is the Son of God. It's rooted in the story. It's pointed to by the prophets. It's shown by John the Baptist. And not only that, the Father opens up heaven and gives us a glimpse of his heart for his Son. And he pours his Spirit out upon him. That voice that comes from heaven, it declared a wondrous love that existed between the Father and the Son for all eternity. That voice was God's full and complete approval, the Father's full and complete approval on Christ and His mission to seek and save the lost. It announced before Jesus did any of His ministry, it announced the Father's acceptance of His Son. And this new covenant that he was going to make. What I love about this is that the Bible shows us that heaven was opened. And a voice came. 
and a dove comes down. The Spirit comes upon him. Often in our minds when we think of heaven, though, we think of heaven that's something far out there. But what this scripture shows us is heaven is just behind the curtain. That the way heaven is shown in scripture is it's just behind the curtain of ordinary life. And instead of it being something that is out there, it's just behind the curtain. And in this moment, God opens up the curtain and pulls it back. And all of a sudden, heaven and earth are overlapping. It's a reflection of how it was at the beginning and it's a reflection of how it will be at the end where heaven and earth will be overlapping. And see, we have to understand that much of us think of heaven that is out here, but a good deal of Christianity is living a life of faith. And faith is learning to live behind the curtain even when you can't see behind the curtain. Isn't it amazing that when the people of God would go into the temple and the presence of God was in the temple, it was just behind a curtain. And they would walk into the presence of God and only when they came in through repentance and a priest could come in. But what he's showing us is that Jesus is, for his son, pulling back the curtain and affirming to us through this miraculous sign. Much of our life we can't see behind the curtain, but faith, is not walking by sight. It's walking by faith. We don't walk in the same way. And this simple declaration is heaven and earth overlapping. But here's what I want you to see, and I can't have you miss this today. We've sung about it. Wayne talked about it. And this is the point that needs to set into our hearts, that this simple declaration, you are my son in whom I am well pleased, in my opinion, and I, and I think you can see even in commentators and even in this scripture, this declaration is a perfect summation, a simple declaration of the gospel. That God looks at everyone who is in Christ. God looks at every baptized believer, everyone who is in Christ, and says, you are my son. I delight in you. And I put my spirit on you. Why can you hear this if it was being spoken to Jesus? Because if Jesus is the Son of God, the declaration is He is the Messiah. What does it mean to be the Messiah? The Messiah is the rep representation of all of His people. So when He declares over the Son... That you are the Son. You are the Messiah in whom I am well pleased. He's declaring it over all of those who are in Christ. So when we hear that Jesus is the Messiah, what we're hearing is this. What is true about Jesus is true about me. What I love about this statement is Jesus has not done any 
miracles. He hasn't done any of his ministry. He hasn't gone out and done a bunch of things. This is not a father who walks up to his son who he has shown disapproval for for all of his life. And finally he wins the Super Bowl. And this father who's been absent all of his life walks up to his son and says, I'm so proud of you. And in that picture, that father has been making his son earn his approval all his life. And now that he's done something great, he is so proud of his son. This father does something far beyond that. Before he's done anything, he announces to him this declaration of the gospel. You are my son. He hasn't even died on the cross in whom I am well pleased. Church, the reason why this is so important to me, and maybe I'm getting a little too passionate about this, but I never grabbed this all of my life until Christ opened my eyes to this reality. I spent much of my life trying to earn the approval of my Father in heaven. Waiting to do the right things in the weeks that I felt like I did everything right, the weeks like I felt like I read my scriptures enough and prayed hard enough and lifted my hands high enough, the weeks that I served hard enough, I heard God's voice saying, I'm so proud of you, but the weeks that I never did enough and I never matched up, I could not feel and know and understand and believe that I was his son. Why? Because it wasn't based upon the work of the Messiah. It was based upon my works. Which church, this is not a healthy father-son relationship that we see in this world where children are constantly trying to earn the approval and the only time the father says he's proud is when the kid does something good. Fathers, be careful that you spend more time telling your kids how much you love them when it's not attached to their words. Spend far more time approving who they are to you because your love for them goes far beyond what they could do for you. This is what sonship is all about. And if you could hear anything from me today because of what Christ has done, because He is the Messiah, because He is right before the Father, because of all that He has accomplished, because of the work that He has done, because of His relationship to the Father, what is true about Jesus is true about you. If you could grab anything, church, grab this. If you are in Christ, He is pleased with you. He is pleased with you. Hear this spoken over you as it's spoken over your Messiah. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my child. And I am pleased with you. Because if you don't know this, you will spend your life in self-righteous behavior trying to earn the approval of a father who's already done the work. If you don't remember anything, if you don't grab anything, this proclamation of the gospel starts here in Mark, showing us that our right standing with God has nothing to do with our works, but the work of Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one in whom the Father is well pleased. He is the one whom the Spirit has anointed 
He is the one who has redeemed us all. Church, there are so many times in my life that there are weeks where I go, I've done a pretty good job this week. But there's probably more times where I question Have I done enough? And the only hope that I get in all of this is when I preach this gospel to myself. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me because I'm in Christ. And if the gospel's not true, I don't have any hope. And I can't tell you how often I need to hear this and reflect on this. So church, if there's anything we should learn from today's message as we go into communion, is these four things. Hopefully you will write them down. One, we see this. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one that caused this all of Scripture and the whole story to come together. He's the one that when this twist came, everything started making sense. He's the one all the prophets, all Scripture has whispered His name. It's all about Jesus. Second thing we see is we need to learn to live small. That goes against everything we hear and breathe in our culture. Everybody's trying to be great. But if you want to be great in the kingdom, you need to learn to be a servant. Live small. Live making much of Jesus. Live making much of Him. Following Him and serving Him and pointing to Him and and pointing people to Him. Knowing that I am not worthy to untie His sandals. It's not by anything I've done. It's not because this whole crowd is here that I'm right before God. I don't get off the stage today and because a whole crowd listened to me preach, I am loved by God because I did that. crowds will fade, I'll end up in a prison being beheaded. But he was still loved. He went through doubts. He questioned whether Jesus really was the Son of God, but he he had to remember to live small, not get swept away. Live small, and what is our mission? What is our whole life? We should live to make much of Jesus. Make much of Jesus. Live small and make much of Jesus. And if there's anything that needs to be dug deep into your heart and let this be rooted so deeply, focus more on who you are in Christ. Learn about your identity, not based upon what you've done, but of who Christ is. When you go before the Father and question your salvation, do I really have a relationship and everything? God, look at all. I've done some things good and all these kind of things are around me and you're kind of looking at your life and evaluating those things. What you need to hear is not do these things better. What you need to hear is the good news. You need to hear the Father's voice need to hear the Spirit is in you. You need to know 
who you are in Christ. And as you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning, I pray that you hear this statement. That as you come to this table, as you drink of this blood, you drink of this cup and you eat of this bread, you're remembering that I'm not worthy to even untie his sandal. nothing I can do could earn me a position or a place before the most holy one. But because of Jesus' death, because of his blood that he spilt for me, because of his relationship with the Father, because he has rescued me and saved me and brought me into his family adopted me because of his work I am a child of God the song in that last verse that we sang just kept ringing in my heart you're a good good father that's who you are I'm loved by you that's who I am I pray as we come to this table some of us today have been coming questioning where are we at before God we're making all these promises and we're trying to find principles and rules by which we can come back if I do these things God I promise if I follow you we spend so much time making all of these promises rather than listening to the gospel listen the gospel is not good advice it's good news good advice would tell you do this and God will love you good news is this you are my son who am I well pleased? Accept the work of Jesus. Put your faith and trust completely in Him. Live as a son, not as a slave. Walk in the freedom that Christ has provided for you. The gospel is true. The Messiah has come. The hope of the world is here. As you come to the tables, let that ring true in your hearts. Fellowship with Him. Hear His voice declared over you that you are His Son because the Messiah has made it so. Jesus has done the work. What's true about Him is true about you. Church, the tables are open as we sing. And I pray that you come to fellowship and enjoy the new covenant as you come to the tables. Let's respond to the good news. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.